Awesome. Thank you so much, Nathan, for putting that together for us. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be beginning in verse 19 this morning. Um, I was listening to a, a leader who's a, a leader of a large church in Oklahoma recently, and he was talking about how the habits that were really healthy in his life had been interrupted because of COVID. Um, he spoke about that he and a best friend for the last 20 years had consistently worked out every week together, doing exercise together, meeting at the gym, same time, same place for 20 years. Now, if you do the math on that, that's over a thousand weeks of consistency, not pending, you know, vacations or things like that, but a thousand weeks of consistently doing something. And then something happened, COVID-19. And so they immediately, their gym was closed. And so they began to develop new routines of working out at home and doing so alone. And, and as they began getting into that new rhythm and, and as COVID continued on, they realized, man, this isn't ending soon. So they began to then purchase equipment um, for, for their home exercise routines and all of those kind of things. So they're getting more and more into the groove. And then in addition to that, they realized how much time they were saving um, by not having to travel to the gym and then maybe travel back home to, to shower and all that and how it just kind of gave them a jump start. And so now that their gym is open, now that they can gather together, they're both fully vaccinated, so they could be in tight proximity without much risk, you know, all of these things, they have still yet, after having over a thousand weeks of consistency, met back together to work out. And he was honest in saying, and I don't know that I will. We have experienced as God's people an interruption in the normal routine that we had developed, a very healthy routine of gathering together. And so I want to speak specifically to you that are at home right now, um, of, that are experiencing that interruption of maybe what used to be a routine of coming regularly to church and gathering with the body. And what I want us to look at this morning is, well, well why do we gather? Is there a, a biblical like precedent or reason, a real backing for why we physically gather and do church the, the way that we do? And I want to say a couple of things right out of the gate because I realize I'm running a risk in a sermon like this um, of, of inflicting guilt and shame. Um, you know, to where it's like, hey, if you're in the room, good job. This sermon, you've already got mastered. If you're at home, shame on you. What are you doing? Come back. That's not what I'm doing. So please hear me. The gospel is not a, a gospel of shame and guilt. In fact, it's the opposite. It says there is no longer shame. There is no longer guilt in Christ. So I wouldn't be much of a minister of the gospel if I used the tools of shame and guilt to begin to try to leverage and maneuver people to, to do what I, I want them to do. So please hear me saying that. This is not a message of guilt and shame. The other thing I want you to know is that for some folks, it's not yet the right time. Let me give you an example uh, to be gathering back together physically. My mom is a double organ transplant recipient. She has a liver and liver and a kidney uh, from a deceased donor. And what that means is she's on a medication that actually suppresses her immune system every day so that her body won't reject those organs. And the studies have already shown that people that are on immune suppressant drugs like she is, um, they're only experiencing about a 17% right now after one, one, one round of vaccination um, presence of antibodies. And so what does that mean? That means it's probably not a great idea for mom to be gathering back together with the church um, until there, there's more of what they're calling herd immunity or something like that because the vaccination's really not gonna work much for her. So you may be at home today and the reason 
is because medically it would be unwise to be in a, in a larger gathering. And so please understand, I realize that there's a not yet nature to this sermon as well. But, but then I also want to communicate a message of hope. I hope that soon, and I'm just going to assume that, that soon, that if you're at home watching today, that you're really wanting to come back. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume that there is the desire for you to come back. Now, I'm not assuming that, that you at home right now are thinking that a pew is more comfortable than the couch or the recliner. Uh, I'm not assuming that you want to have to spend time showering and getting ready and makeup and all the stuff and get out the door pretty early rather than being able to just stay in PJs or house clothes until, until it's time for the service and then pressing play. And I'm not assuming that our coffee is better than yours. Um, you know, I'm not assuming any of those things because they're not, you know, like the, the seats are not as comfortable as the homes at, 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 at home and all of those things. But there is something very needed for each one of us to have times together. And so I want to remind you of the, of the essence of what it is to be fully human is interaction and relationships. But more than that, and what we're speaking to specifically today from God's Word, is this, that to be fully born-again human is this aspect of our gathering and our togetherness. And so if you're, you're at home today, I want to speak a message to you and to you that are here today that maybe are really contemplating, you know, whether it's a good idea to keep gathering and to, and to come into this physical proximity. Is there anything biblical to it? Or is it something that we've come up with and really we'd be wiser to depart with? Well, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, that we're going to walk through today to really consider this, this aspect of why we gather. So beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, that it is by your design that this thing of gathering together, of, of being the church, is ordained and how it is good for us and, and what it is meant to accomplish. And so, Lord, for all of the things that we have maybe caused our gathering to be about today, Father, we pray that through your word, you would reorient us to what it is you, by your spirit, desire for us to experience and to accomplish during these times of gathering. And why it is so important that just as the writer says, that we not neglect gathering together. And so Lord, may, may your spirit move with power today through your word. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. 
So today, as we go through this passage, what we're going to see is three calls to action. Um, They're found in verses 22, 23, and 24. And in the Greek, they're a subjunctive, which means it's not an imperative, meaning he's not saying, do this, do this, do this. Instead, um, like a really good communicator, somebody that's trying to call everyone to an action, he says, let us. Let's go to it. Draw near. Let us hold on, verse 23, and then let us watch out. And so he's speaking this message about gathering, but it's important for us to see, verse 25, not neglecting to gather together. And so there's a context in which the writer, in which the the communicator is wanting and assuming that they are gathered together, number one, to hear this message. Because when he sent it, it would have been something read to the church. It wasn't something that he published and then sent to everybody individually. It would have been a gathering to which they would have been in to hear this originally. And so that's important. He's assuming the essence of the gathering, but he is reminding them based on the the accomplished work of Jesus, why it is they gather. They gather to draw near. They gather gather to hold on. They, They gather to watch out. And so inherent in it is we can't draw near the way that he intends if we don't gather together. We can't hold on the way that he intends if we don't gather together. And we can't watch out to provoke one another to love and good deeds if we don't gather together. And so that's why it's so essential for us to continue to gather together. Why you, if you're at home, you're at a place of of considering whether to to gather together, why it's important for you and for your good and for your health and your growth in the Lord to gather together. And so let's walk through these three to see what it is, what the essence of each of these calls, these, these, these calls to action, let us statements are. Well, first of all, we see this. We gather to draw near. We gather together to draw near. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now, let me just say this. I have never on a Sunday morning before I went to church, kind of as that like last minute out the door checklist said, okay, now before I go, do I have a true heart and full assurance of faith? Check. Um, is, Is my heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? Check. Is my body washed in pure water? Check. You know, like, it, it, so is that really what, what the author's trying to do is to give you a new before you leave for Sunday service checklist? Well, kind of. Except rather than giving you a checklist for you to check off, what he's doing is giving you the accomplished checklist. In other words, the boxes are already checked by Jesus. He's saying this is what Jesus has done for you and this is why you can be ready to gather with the church. And he does it in a way that for us is a little bit of a foreign language, if you will. He's using terminology that we don't use today. Not not many of us talk about the the need for sprinkling with blood. Uh, Not many of us talk about curtains separating us from God. We, We don't speak in that terminology, but there's significance to it. And what it is, is everything that he's saying is pointing back like a huge billboard to the Old Testament. He's reminding them of all of these things that were ultimately pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. Go back with me, beginning up in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. You see, throughout the Old Testament, 
in the, in, the, in the sacrificial system, it was so important that sacrifices be made for what was understood to be the forgiveness of sins. And, and specifically, there was a, a day called the Day of Atonement. Where, where a sacrifice would be made with blood, where the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year and to go in and make sacrifice for the people. And then he would come out and, and literally sprinkle the people with the blood that had made atonement for their sins in the holy place. And so this would happen with the blood of a lamb, which is this huge sign ultimately pointing to Jesus at the cross and the blood that he was shed. You remember it was John the Baptist who at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, when Jesus came to him at the Jordan said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the identification. This is God's lamb. This is the the only sacrifice that can be made to truly take away sins. In fact, that's the point that the writer makes in Hebrews earlier in chapter 10 is that the blood of goats and sheep could never take away our sin. But that ultimately, there was going to be one sacrifice made once for all that could. And that sacrifice was the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You see, then you go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation. And what do we behold? We behold everyone gathered around worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And what does it say? And and the Lamb who was slain. That's the only reason we can gather with confidence this morning is because Christ died for us. You see, then it goes on. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That curtain was the curtain that separated the the most holy place, the holy of holies from this holy place where where the priest would go in on a daily basis to be able to do things, to offer offer bread, to have the, the candles lit, and all of these different things would happen there. There was a curtain that separated the presence of God from the normal presence that people would experience to his nearness. It's that same curtain that is recorded in the Gospels that in the moment when Jesus breathed his last on the cross was torn, not from bottom to top as though somebody did it, but from top to bottom demonstrating that God had done it. And in that moment, and that's why the author says that he has inaugurated a new and living way through the curtain, that is his flesh, because this is what tore the the curtain. Jesus given for us. And then he goes on to say, and since we have a high priest over the house of God. You see, every other high priest, the, the writer of Hebrews makes the case, they were sinful just like everybody else. So they had to make sacrifice for themselves first and then for the people because they were sinful men. But Jesus, the writer of Hebrews makes clear, was without sin. There was no sin in him. He was born into our broken world, but he wasn't broken. He was born into our sinful condition, but he wasn't sinful. Making him righteous, making him pure and clean. And so he didn't need to die for himself He died on our behalf. Jesus was sinless, given for us. And therefore, the writer says, after all of these Old Testament pointing to the the day of atonement, the curtain that separated, the sinless, the, the sin offerings that were made, the high priest over the house of God, all of these things, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Jesus did all of that. In other words, somebody already did everything needed to get you where you should most want to go. Somebody already did everything needed to get you where you should most want to go. Next month, we'll actually celebrate on May 8th, the eight-year anniversary for when my mom and I went through a procedure together. At Oshner, right here in New Orleans, over on Jefferson Highway, they, they, they were really starting a new liver transplant program. And so there was this real, real opportunity that opened up to us. My mom has autoimmune hepatitis, and she was getting very, very near the end of her life unless something big happened. And so my brother and I both stepped forward in order to see if we could be donors for my mom, to be able to donate part of our liver to our mom to do a living donor transplant. And so it was one of those things where we, as we stepped in, in order to, to do that, um, the, the lot fell to me, that I was a better fit than my brother was to be able to do that. And so 70% of my liver was taken out and given to my mom. Ultimately, her body did not respond well to that. And so she got sicker and sicker and sicker, and then ultimately needed the liver and a kidney from a deceased donor. But because Oshner was really trying to champion this, this living donor program and their organ donor program, they, they highlighted at the New Orleans Saints games. And so there was this opportunity for, for uh, there to be a, a donor recognition in one of the preseason games. And so I was chosen to be that, that donor for that game. And so here's what that meant. That meant that Cole and I got to go to a game and got to go places at the Superdome. We have no business going. In other words, we got to show up at an entrance and when we got there, it was an entrance we had never gone through. It's not the entrance you get to go, you know, go to for the seats that we usually get at a game. But when we got there, they gave us a badge. We put it on over us, and it's this big lanyard. And so then we get to go through an entrance that we don't get, usually get to go through. And we go in, and we get to go through tunnels down on the, on the ground level of the Superdome that we have no business being in, seeing people, seeing players, seeing all these things. And then all of a sudden, we get to walk out on the field of the Superdome and there we are on the sidelines. And, and Drew Brees runs over. He says, hey, Chad, Brittany and I want to do a double date with you and Cole. Okay, that part didn't happen. But I could see, I could see Drew Brees from where I was, okay, really well. And so there we are. And then before the game, they, they do this recognition. And so we get to come out there and, and I get to get this ball signed by the entire team. You know, Drew Brees, Sean Payton, Tom Benson, everybody, you know, their signatures are on this ball, you know, this, this whole recognition thing. But see, the reality of it, though, is that none of it would have been possible without a man named Trevor Reichman. You see, Trevor was my surgeon. You see, Trevor's the guy that studied hard in high school for four years in order to get into a really good college, where then he studied for another four years, to then go on to med school where he studied and worked really hard for another four years, to then go on to a residency that took him about five years, into a fellowship that took another three in order to do an operation on me where my contribution was just to lay there. That's my work. I was like a, a dead guy on a table while this, this expert who had done all the work necessary went to work doing something for me that I could never do for myself. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ did for us what we could never do. The Bible says, while we were yet dead in our sins, Christ died for us. 
That's the gospel we proclaim. And in doing that, Jesus opened for us a living way into an area of access to God, not to the New Orleans saints, to God Almighty that we have no business having. We should have no business ever going behind the curtain that was torn, but yet that's exactly where Jesus brought us. We should have no business ever coming before God with confidence rather than just bowing down and hiding. But Jesus has given us this confidence. He has brought us where we should have always most wanted to go, but like Adam and Eve, we hid. But now Jesus, Jesus has given us clothing. Jesus has washed us clean. Jesus has given us access to go where we should have always been wanting to go in the first place. So let us, church, draw near because this is what Jesus has done for us. Second, we see in verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Let us hold on. I want you to turn with me back to chapter 3 of Hebrews because I think there's a key verse to help give understanding where we find the same exact word. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3, here's what we read from the author. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an, uh, an evil unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly, same word, if we hold firmly until the end, the reality that we had at the start. You see, the reality that we had at the start was that gospel message that we just proclaimed. But this serves as a warning to us, especially in our day where many say that if you're actually making progress in your faith, you're actually not holding as tight to the gospel. In other words, it's almost treated as though that elementary teaching of Jesus crucified, dead and buried and resurrected, were almost as if it were a children's lesson just meant to illustrate something more adult rather than it itself being the truth that we need to hold on. You see, I think it's interesting that as many teenagers, college students, and adults continue on with the Lord, it's as if their grasp of the gospel gets weaker and weaker through the years rather than stronger and stronger. And yet, from the context of what we read in chapter 3 and then the call in verse 23 to let us hold on to the confession of our hope. Well, what is the confession of our hope? That Jesus Christ is Lord and that his lordship ought to be manifest in every sphere of our life, in our relationships, in our finances, in our thought life, in our time, that Jesus as Lord ought to be the confession that we proclaim at all times without wavering, as he, as he said, since he who promised is faithful. Well, let me tell you what I've seen produce that, that tighter grip on the gospel. It's learning the gospel. And it's learning it so well that you can share it with any person at any time. The way that, that we did that back when I was at Edgewater Baptist Church and then what I brought over to Trinity Baptist Church and what we will be pursuing as a church on the first Sunday in May is learning a way of sharing the gospel called the three circles. Now, the three circles is just a tool. It's just meant to help you get a grasp on the gospel so that then you've got it and you can share it with any person at any time. 
But let me tell you what I saw in the life of a 72-year-old woman named Miss Dolores. Miss Dolores had been a believer for about 45 years. She had been faithfully attending church. She had been faithful to come to her Sunday school class. She was faithful in worship every week. She was a faithful church member. And so I came to her Sunday school class and I taught them the three circles on a Sunday morning. On Monday morning, Miss Dolores had made a commitment to bring her elderly neighbor to a doctor appointment. And so she brought him to his doctor appointment. And then when they got back home, she sat in the driveway and there in the driveway, she shared the gospel using the three circles that she had learned the day before with her neighbor and asked him what was keeping him from turning from his sin and trusting and following Jesus. And he said nothing. And so there in the car, in the driveway after a doctor appointment, he gave his life to Jesus Christ in his 80s. Miss Dolores found me the next day on Tuesday and she said, Chad, I have to tell you something. She said, I shared the gospel with a man yesterday and led him to Christ in the car after a doctor visit. I said, Miss Dolores, that's wonderful. She's like, no, 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 that's not what I want to tell you. She said, what I want to tell you is I've been a believer for 45 years and I have never led someone to Christ in my 45 years as a believer. And I can't think for a moment that it's not because Miss Dolores hated people for 45 years. I don't think it was because Miss Dolores didn't actually care whether anybody came to Christ or not. I don't think it was because Miss Dolores was apathetic in her faith. I think it was because Miss Dolores didn't have a firm grasp. She wasn't holding on tight to the gospel. She had believed it, but she had not been given a way to grasp it, like a handle on luggage. It's not the, the handle. None of us hope that our handle makes it to our destination when we travel. We hope the luggage does, but the, but the handle helps us get the luggage there and carry it there. And so the three circles is like a handle just to be able to carry what is the treasure of the gospel. And so Miss Dolores was given a good handle to then be able to carry it into that moment with a neighbor to be able to share the gospel and for the first time as a believer of 45 years, lead someone to Christ. And then she went on to share the gospel with me. <laughs> she, she, she said, I wanna show you the three circles. And I was like, okay, Miss Dolores. And so she, she showed me the three circles and then she showed the other people and did it a second time because she was so excited that she finally had a grasp that she was actually holding on to the gospel. And she was more alive as a 72 year old than I've seen of many 22 year olds. That's what happens when we hold on to the gospel firmly. When we've got a grasp on it so tightly that we can share it with any person at any time, it strengthens our confidence in the hope. She watched a neighbor in his 80s come into eternal life, enter the kingdom of God, and that revived her and gave her life. And so we gather together in order to hold on to this truth of the gospel. That's why it's so important that from God's word, we're reading with a gospel lens of seeing the gospel manifest. That's why the writer of Hebrews does such an excellent job of saying the entire Old Testament, because he takes all of this imagery and says it was all pointing to Jesus. It becomes this historic, redemptive way of reading the entire Bible, of being able to look and to say all of these things were ultimately pointing in this direction. And that is the gospel. That's why we must gather. That's why we must keep coming back to the gospel and applying it as we study the scriptures and as we prepare to go and to bring this message to the end of the world. And then verse 24, 
and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. When we speak about gathering together, one of the things that I was recently confronted with was this question of what, what do I really want in your life? As a pastor, what is it that I'm most hopeful that you will experience as a follower of Jesus Christ? It, it was a question that I, I had not pondered seriously enough and that I'm still wrestling with. But I wonder this, when you come into your Bible study group, when you meet either before this worship service or after, when you go in, what is it that you most hope for the people in your group? If you're like me, maybe you're, you're like, I really have never thought about what I hope for them. And if I'm honest, it's what I hope for myself that I'm most conscious of. And, and just being totally honest in this moment, sometimes I'm just, I just hope I don't botch the job in delivering the sermon. I hope that it's a good morning where there's not a bunch of negative things that go wrong and stuff like that, that it's just smooth sailing. But is that really hoping much for you other than that this will just be kind of almost uneventful? That's not much of a hope, is it? And I think that that was having to be confronted in the first century just as it needs to confront us again today. That in our lives, in our shared relationship, in our gatherings with one another, what are we hoping for one another? Well, Scripture calls us clearly that it ought to be to watch out. And this isn't a judgmental watching. It's a careful consideration. That's what it really is communicating, that we actually genuinely care enough about one another, that what we're hoping for each other is this, this, this provocation, this provoking one another to love and good works. That what I should hope and what you should hope for one another is that when we gather, it is actually stirring us up and encouraging us and, and maybe giving us that one last little push we need to go ahead and, and take that next step in doing what is loving and what would be considered a good work. You see, that happens all the time when I spend time with each of you. When I have conversations and I hear about the things that you're doing in your life and what's going on, it, it, it compels me, it prompts me, it encourages me, it provokes me to also do the same. There, there was a woman named um, Miss Ellen that was at Trinity Baptist Church. And Miss Ellen had such a huge heart for senior adults in her church at Trinity Baptist Church. And so Miss Ellen would take it upon herself to, to get the list of all of the, the widows and the widowers in the church. There's about 80, a little over 80 people that fit that category. And so then Miss Ellen would, would spend hours and hours preparing 80 individual gifts to be able to bring to each one of those people, giving up her time in these kind of, you know, retirement years, early retirement years to serving and to caring for one another. And when I would see her doing that, God placing that burden on her and that deep love for others and it being manifest in such practical, thoughtful ways, it caused me to then say, what can I do? Who, who, who haven't I seen in a moment? Who, who recently told me about a, an upcoming surgery or, or a loss of a child or grandchild or whatever that I can reach out and talk to? And so Ellen, by the way that she was living her life, was provoking me toward also doing good works. 
But that only came as we saw each other and said, how are things going? And then we began to share with one another face to face. That's why it's so important that we not neglect gathering together. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a day that is approaching and it will be a day when everything will be clear. And we will look in a moment at this life and we'll realize the time that we wisely invested and the time that we squandered. It will be a day when we see perfectly clear what was of value and what was not. And one of the things that Scripture again and again assumes is that we are gathering together as believers because it's valuable and because it's life-changing, and it actually orients us to what matters in this life. God and people. And so based on the authority of God's Word for why we gather, I want to challenge us to a few things. Number one, I want to challenge you to prioritize weekly gathering with the body. Now, right now, like I said, it may not be the time yet. And so for you at home, it may be prioritizing this time slot to be able to stop everything else and to gather online with your faith family. But we live in a day and age where regular attendance is considered two times a month. I think we're in danger when that has become the standard because of other things that we allow to come in and interrupt this sacred time of gathering together with the body. Now I realize there's nuances to that, but here's what I'm speaking to more than anything is allowing something else to become ultimate for this time. Whether it's recreation, it's sports, it's entertainment, those sort of things. Allowing those things to come in and to steal this sacred time because we need it in order to draw near. I don't know anybody that says, I don't want to be closer to God. No, I'm close enough. I don't need to be any closer. We need to gather to draw near. I don't know anybody that says, man, the gospel got it, don't need any help. I'm a soul winner. I'm, I'm good. In fact, if you need help teaching, I'll be glad to. You know, I don't know anybody like that. That's that, that confident, and most people are like, you know, man, I don't know what I'd say if I had the chance to share the gospel. We need to gather to hold on. And I don't know anyone that says, man, I do enough good works for everybody. I don't need anybody to encourage me, but I can encourage you. Now, we all need to be stirred up. We all need someone encouraging us and provoking us on toward good works. And so, therefore, I want to encourage you prioritize this weekly time together. It is sacred and it is so important for your growth in the Lord. In this moment of response, there's a reality that supersedes this idea of gathering together. And it's this first reality of really embracing what is said at the beginning that we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. And so if you're here today, I want you to know this. The only reason we can gather in this place and in this way with any confidence is because of what Jesus did for us. And you may be here today, and your confidence or your reason for gathering has been something else. But it hasn't been on the grounds of what Jesus did for you. I want you to know that's why Jesus died. It was to bring you back to God. 
It was to bring you into his presence. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you, was to, was to save you and to cleanse you of all sin and then to bring you into his kingdom to experience life with God. And so if, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never trusted in his accomplished work for you, I encourage you, give your life to Jesus. Look at the words of scripture that we just read. Trust that it's only through his blood. Trust that it's through his flesh that you can enter into the presence of God. Trust that this is the great high priest over the house of God, the only one who can bring you in. But then for the rest of us, this might be a morning maybe of saying to Jesus, Jesus, I want to prioritize gathering on a weekly basis with the church. Now, some of you may travel. But there are churches all over our country, all over the world, that you could say, I'm going to commit to gathering with a local body even when I travel. You may be at home this morning and, and saying, you know, it's just not yet the right time. I encourage you, prioritize this time from 930 to 1045 to be with the body. It's important for us to draw near. It's important for us to hold on. It's important for us to watch out for one another. And so let's surrender fresh again.